Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Monday the 23rd of November. Today, urgent checks are now being carried out into Cumbria's bridges, all 1,800 of them, after the heaviest rainfall on record causes devastating floods. The, the, the buildings might be broken, but the people aren't. Also today, a crisis of confidence in Ofsted, as the Children's Services Inspectorate is criticised from all quarters. And meet the birthers, the conspiracy theorists who say President Barack Obama's a foreign agent bent on destroying the free world. He's seen as a socialist and by some as a sort of Marxist interloper. First, here's Bill Overton with the news headlines. Four men have been charged with terrorism offences after raids in Manchester last week. They're appearing in court in London later. Police say the arrests came after a 15-month investigation by the North West Counter-Terrorism Unit. There was a protest about the arrests outside Greater Manchester Police Headquarters yesterday. There'll be widespread disruption as people try to get to work in Cumbria today. More than 25 roads and 16 bridges are closed to traffic. Several schools are closed and more than 50 people are still unable to return to their homes. As business leaders meet for the annual conference of the CBI, their director-general says the recession has been a catalyst for a new era. He says companies will have smaller core workforces with more staff on flexible contracts. He believes firms will use less risky ways to grow and cooperate more in partnerships. The Prime Minister Gordon Brown's among the first speakers at the conference. He wants to see far more investment in Britain from China. He's hoping to see thousands of Chinese firms working here. Other speakers are Tory leader David Cameron and the head of the International Monetary Fund. The inquiry into the Iraq war also opens this week. Its chair, Sir John Chilcott's insisting it won't be a whitewash, but a narrative of how the war happened in order to learn lessons for the future. Among those appearing will be former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Thousands of strange creatures have been found living in the ocean's depth below where sunlight reaches. Researchers from the USA have found more than 17,000 species down there, including cucumbers with tentacles and worms that feed on oil. Nothing quite so shocking in the morning papers, but Jermaine Defoe's performance for Spurs yesterday broke a new record. He scored five goals in his team's defeat of Wingard by nine goals to one. It puts Spurs on cloud nine is the headline in our paper over the picture most used of the man himself kissing the match ball. Most papers choose the same line, except for the Times, whose version is Lethal Defoe has Wigan calling 999. They give Andy Murray the pitcher lead, though, as he won his first match at the ATP World Tour Finals in London. The big weekend story of the Cumbria floods only gets a front page in the mirror. There's a photo of a river in Torrent rushing under a bridge, while the headline is, We're almost out of food quoting volunteers helping families forced to leave their homes. The paper describes people as being stranded or marooned because of six bridges swept away. The Telegraph claims to have found another MP on the Common Standards Committee with questionable expenses. This time it's the Labour MP for Hendon, Andrew Dismore, who the paper argues faces questions for flipping two homes in London and charging the taxpayer £65,000 in allowances. Finally, the Sun takes great joy in last night's X Factor results when the controversial Irish twins were voted out. The headline, Jedward, Deadwood. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. There have been further torrential downpours across Wales and Western England, adding to the death toll and the devastation caused by severe floods. In Cumbria, after record-breaking rainfall, all the county's 1,800 bridges are being checked for safety. Martin Wainwright surveys the damage. 
I'm in Cockermouth where it's tipping down with rain again this morning. That's not altogether a bad thing because if it was raining heavily in the Lake District, that's where the water would come from that would send the water level rising here again, whereas raining in Cockermouth, um, it'll just go down to the sea and the water shouldn't have gathered any force by then. But there's great concern at the minute about the Carver Bridge at um, Workington, which has been structurally damaged by the floods and has moved, and they think that's going to become the sixth bridge in Cumbria to collapse. I'm just down in uh, Main Street now, um, at the junction with the West Sand Lane, and this is where Wordsworth's house is, a magnificent Georgian house. His father was the agent to the big estate round here. It fronts directly onto the uh, the joint Derwent and Cocker, who, who meet, which meet the two rivers which meet in this town, and is one of the principal attractions. All the signs outside uh, Cockermouth um, have it top of their list. Those brown tourist signs, you know. The front garden here has been completely devastated. The whole wall on one side has come crashing down. Not of the house, of the garden. The main street is completely deserted. You can probably hear in the background, as well as the seagulls, a kind of chirrup of alarms. Mayo is still here, that's symbolic. Mayo is the statue of the sixth Earl of Mayo, um, which stands in the middle of the high street, the main street of Cockermouth. This main street, which was just a river uh, on Thursday night and Friday. Um, and there was a lot of speculation about whether he'd have gone, but he hasn't gone. He's still there on his plinth. And beyond him is the town Christmas tree, uh, which remarkably hasn't fallen down. People are just waiting for these guys to make this town safe now and they want to be back in here getting their businesses up and running again. And we, what we have to do is the county council and other councils to give them all that assistance that they need to do that, um, providing them with uh, methods of cleaning out their rub, taking the stuff away that they don't discarded and moving them forward as fast as we can. Obviously drying out some major stalling uh, in that uh, process because it's winter slow to dry out we're on gravel sure. but uh, we we must assist them and get it going again and plus we, people need to get back into the houses and get their lives back together that i think the majority of people didn't have the opportunity really to do much at all it was uh, it, it, it was like on this a two and three hour period and it was right there and just cleaned everything out um, and it was a, a matter of now then saving people's lives so I would imagine the majority of people have lost stock as have lost everything and it, it was so torrential that it was coming in one door and whipping stuff out in the street and, 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 and basically cleaning out the shops for them Well I'm with one of the busiest men around the Member of Parliament uh, Tony Cunningham well it, well it must be awful to look at this at close quarters It's absolutely devastating uh, we're looking out over a main street which looks like uh, a war zone uh, the rain is still coming down, people are still not being allowed back into their homes. And it's not just Cockermouth. You know, Keswick has suffered, Workington is suffering at the moment. Some of them are running short of food. Some of them are running short of medication. The community centre, which is trying to get uh, materials in, is down to their last few packets of nappies, their last few jars of... How bad is that? Yeah, their last few jars of baby food. The, near, the neighbouring towns are running out of food as well, the shops are. To give you an example, I spoke to a taxi driver who... Would, would, would have taken a fare to Seaton from Workington, which is about a mile away, one mile. He, he took a round trip last night of 180 miles Simply in because order to get to the place which was a mile away. You can see it's, it's two or three minutes. Yes, because, because you can no longer cross no the Derwent. There's no, there's no bridges across yeah. the Derwent. Yeah. So mm. impressed by people coming to the reception centres and just coming and volunteering. Mm. I've just just turning up and... There's some church people who are yeah. busy, you know, doing the traffic, and it's no, it's fantastic. Yes. No, it's incredible, um, and everywhere you go, that community spirit is there. 
Uh, as I've said uh, on a number of occasions, the, 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 the buildings might be broken, but the people aren't. Martin Wainwright reporting, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash UK. Also on the Guardian's website, are koala bears heading for extinction? Find out at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Charlie Porter on being arrested in Canary Wharf for carrying red paint and clutch bag. Guardian.co.uk slash fashion. And Stephen Moss interviews John Sintamu, the Archbishop of York. Guardian.co.uk slash religion. Ofsted, the Children's Services Inspectorate, is facing a barrage of criticism from head teachers, local authorities, children's services, from MPs, even from a former chief inspector. Polly Curtis, our education editor, says Ofsted's being assailed from all directions. It's quite remarkable timing, but you've got kind of several things going on. You've got this report from the Association of Directors of Children's Services, which is really them whistleblowing on the problems they're facing with Ofsted at the moment. It's quite unusual for the heads of children's services from every local authority in the country to sign up a document which is that critical of its um, watchdog. Then on, on other fronts, you've got a report from the Children's Select Committee about to be published, which is about the entire school accountability system. But um, zones in on Austin claims that its um, inspectors aren't well trained enough. You've got head teachers saying that a new inspection regime for schools is causing them problems. They're saying that schools are being failed on quite routine issues that, that doesn't seem fair. Um, small safeguarding issues like fences around the school not being high enough or, or there was one school where the inspector was offered a cup of tea before asked to show his ID and that was seen as a kind of threat to the school's security and they were marked down. They say that safeguarding children is obviously really, really important, but they feel that the inspectors are going in trying to catch them out instead of trying to kind of assess the education they're providing. And they've also been criticised by a former chief inspector of Ofsted, Sir Mike Tomlinson. That's right. I mean, he's... Um, his, his wording on this is very careful. He, he wants to raise the question about whether Ofsted can fulfil its expanded remit. And about two years ago, Ofsted used to just do education and childminding. Two years ago, it was made responsible for children's services as well. And since then, that element of its remit has been under huge pressure from the fallout of the death of baby P and their role in inspecting Harringay and accusations by the former head of Harringay Children's Services. This is Sharon Shoesmith against Ofsted. So Mike Tomlinson's intervention, he really wants to raise this question and say, you know, is Ofsted's remit right? Does it have the right skills and expertise to do what it needs to do? Now, Ofsted is obviously rejecting all these allegations. They say that they do have the skills. They overtook another inspector and um, with that got a lot of their expertise. So they're saying that it is there. But this all comes ahead of their annual report on Tuesday, which always kind of shines the spotlight on the organisation. Um, and as we're waiting, to hear the outcome of the Sharon Shoesmith um, High Court case. So it's that, you know, the, the stakes are very high for us there, particularly because the Tories have made some noises that they might reduce the role of Ofsted. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's kind of under fire. Polly Curtis. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, why Hugo Chavez has heaped praise on the terrorists Carlos the Jackal, Robert Mugabe, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and Idi Amin. And the fluid piano, the reinvention of one of the most important musical instruments in Western music. But 
But first, the legitimacy of Barack Obama's presidency is being challenged by right-wing conspiracy theorists who say he's not American. In New York is The Guardian's Ed Pilkington. In a nutshell, they think that Obama is an um, illegal president, that Obama is sort of foreign, really, um, to boil it down to its bare bones. He's a foreign imposter who has uh, sort of masqueraded through fraud or or cover-up his right to be president of the United States. I mean, the kind of various arguments that they have is that he was born in Kenya, that he was born in Indonesia... Uh, that is, by dint of his father being uh, African, he's not, he has no right to be president anyway. They have a, myri- uh, a myriad of different answers to it, but the, but the real thing is that he, he doesn't have the right to be president of the United States. Even though this was dealt with during last year's election campaign, wasn't it, these allegations? Well, they first started coming up when he became sort of prominent as a, as a serious candidate for the Democrat Party. And at that point, uh, if you recall, the sort of main argument was that he was a Muslim, and there was lots of that during the campaign. And you had, a, in a small scale, you had arguments that he was not uh, a natural-born citizen, which is what the Constitution requires for a president to be. And most people take natural-born citizen to mean born in the United States. And if you recall, that's why Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in California could never run for president, because he was, he's, he was Austrian-born. Uh, but the birth has gone much deeper and much wider and come up with lots of different arguments for why he's not a natural-born citizen. And those arguments really sort of whammed in after Obama was elected and have since become sort of much more prominent. Uh, and people who follow this this uh, sort of phenomenon argue that's because you can say he's a Muslim, but that doesn't uh, stop him being president. Uh, the American Constitution protects the right to different uh, religions in this country. Uh, whereas if you say that he's not a natural-born citizen and try and prove that, that allows you potentially to actually unseat him, to remove him from the White House. And that's the ambition of this the, this very loose network of so-called birthers. Because it's really about hostility to Obama's politics rather than any you know having any genuine evidence that uh, he's I- illegitimate. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to birthers, as, as I've been doing, they will say their first and foremost uh, uh, sort of commitment is to the Constitution of America. But then when you get them talking quite quickly, they'll move on to why they hate him so much. And that, when, that's when, in a sense why, when it becomes interesting, because their reasons for hating him are actually very similar to a much wider and more mainstream movement that's sweeping across America at the moment, as we've seen with the, the summer tea parties, so-called, the protests against Obama. And it extends right into the sort of right wing of the Republican Party, where he's seen as a socialist, a demagogue, uh, and by some potentially more seriously than, than, than that, as a sort of Marxist interloper who's trying to inveigle his way into the US system and then overturn it, you know, like the communists of old. So it's a sort of almost a Cold War argument that's going on here. As you say, you've been meeting some of the birthers, some of the proponents of this um, argument. Who are they? Well, they're as wide and uh, as hard to define as the arguments that they come up with. I mean, no one really knows how many of them there are, though I think it's fair to say they're probably more than you think in that, you know, many Americans share sympathy with their arguments uh, and their websites uh, attract quite a lot of traffic. And as I say, I think that's part of this uh, movement sweeping across America that is very critical of Obama as a, as a socialist. 
The, the funny thing is that the, the, the guys I've been speaking to, one is uh, of Russian birth and the other is British. So, you know, you sort of wonder how come a, a Russian and a Brit is, is telling Obama he's not an American. Uh, they're both naturalized Americans, so they have the right fully to be taking part in the political debate here. But it's, it's a sort of hodgepodge of different people, of lawyers, campaigners, right-wingers disaffected from the Republican Party who they think is too mild. And sort of the angry crowd, but very much on the right wing of of politics. Ed Pilkington in New York. Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan president, has courted international notoriety many times before, for instance referring to George Bush in a speech to the UN as the devil. Well, now he's done it again in a speech to international socialist politicians. The Guardian's Rory Carroll is in Caracas. He has said that Carlos de Jackal is a revolutionary fighter and that his life term for murder uh, is an injustice, and that Carlos Jackal is really a champion of Palestinian rights um, and who should be recognised for the freedom fighter that he is. And he's also praised other demagogues, really, in the West, people like Robert Mugabe, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and even Idi Amin. Yes, he, he went out of his way to, to, to pick controversial uh, leaders um, and claim them as brothers. Uh, he said Iran's Mahmoud Madinejad, who was just beginning a tour of South America, including Venezuela this week, uh, is his brother, um, as is Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe. And then he went um, so far as to evoke Uganda's late dictator Idi Amin, saying that people thought he was a cannibal, but he said, I have doubts, I don't know. Maybe he was a great nationalist, a patriot, uh, is what he said about Idi Amin. Now, this has already provoked a strong reaction from Ugandan government officials who say this is a travesty and that Idi Amin uh, was a bloodthirsty dictator um, and that hundreds of thousands of people died uh, during his dictatorship in the 1970s. So already there's some strong reaction to what Hugo Chavez has said. And um, Chavez anticipated this, actually. I mean, in, in his comments, which he gave to a room full of applauding delegates at a socialist conference here in Caracas on Friday, uh, Chavez said, I don't care what they say about me in Europe tomorrow, meaning that he knew very well that the comments he was saying uh, would be controversial, um, and indeed they are. Does Chavez help the cause of international socialism uh, when he praises people like this? No, I think what Chavez is trying to achieve here really is is to get attention. I think he's quite keen to establish or to consolidate his reputation, if you like, as the enfant terrible of uh, of international diplomacy. He is the guy who who says the unsayable, uh, who crosses the line, um, and so on. Um, and this gets him. He knows he, it, this will get him a lot of headlines. I mean, these are rather calculated things. When he says these controversial things, it's not necessarily some off-the-cuff blunder or a gaffe. It's actually, he tends to to plan these things, knowing very well that the likes of The Guardian, for instance, um, as well as a lot of other international media, will pick up on these comments and report them because they are quite newsworthy. And this gets him a lot of attention and solidifies his reputation in his own eyes as, um, as a revolutionary leader. And at the same time, much as this might prompt some condemnation uh, or criticism uh, internationally, in Venezuela, it's not going to really cost him any votes because the people who are already inclined to vote for Hugo Chavez are not going to not vote for him now just because he said something controversial about Carlos de Jackal. For them, it's not really an issue. So what he gets is international attention um, for pretty much a very low political cost because it won't cost him votes in Venezuela. Dan, we've fallen right into his trap. We are. This very conversation we're having right now uh, shows that he plays the media often like a violin. So, 
Yes, I mean, you could say that there is a, a, a political cost to say because maybe kind of moderate people who think they like the government's policies here uh, internationally may feel, may get a bit queasy when he says these things. But for Chavez, that doesn't really matter so much because he doesn't need their support. As, as I said, it's, he's looking for international attention and at the same time he knows this will not cost him votes domestically. So yes, in a sense, we have fallen into his trap. Rory Carroll, the world's first microtonally fluid piano is receiving its London premiere in the Purcell Room in March. It plays not just the 88 notes that you'd find on a normal piano, but tones in between, allowing musicians to play music from places like Iran and India. The Guardian found out more from pianist Pam Chauhan and the instrument's inventor, the composer Jeff Smith. My name is Jeff Smith, um, uh, I'm a composer, performer uh, and an inventor and um, I'm sitting in front of the first ever fluid piano. Uh, it's a totally acoustic piano and there are no electronics and that's the significance of it. It's a totally acoustic instrument. The reason it's called uh, a fluid piano is that it has microtonal tuning on every single note and that means that you can change the tuning on each note, individually, independently, separately, so that you're no longer restricted to purely Western tuning. It does create some insecurities in the musician because you know no longer is the tuning fixed. So you have this sort of that contradiction, which is on the one hand it makes you feel insecure, but then also that's good because you know you have these new possibilities. really is um, when I hear Indian musicians introducing an electronic keyboard or a piano into the scores and to the compositions and it just jars because the tuning of a piano is absolutely rigid and the tuning of um, a lot of Indian music whether it's um, Hindustani or Carnatic you know whether it's north or south um, in, by its very essence it's microtonal it's tuned very finely it's, it's got a lot of inflections and the, the piano simply hasn't got that So many instruments have to defer or have had to defer to the Western piano in terms of tuning, in terms of orchestral music. So as soon as you change the piano, it brings up that fundamental question. You know, how would you reconsider the design of other acoustic instruments? And culturally, it's um, a freer instrument. It is definitely an international instrument. Jeff Smith. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Ian Chambers and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Oh, 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 oh,